Okay, so turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, and we're going to do uh, from chapter 1, verse 12, to um, verse 11 of chapter 2 tonight. Let me begin by reading the... Um, the passage we'll be going over, and then we'll pray. So, Ecclesiastes 1.12. Uh, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous endeavor which God has given to the sons of men which, with which to occupy themselves. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is bent cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I spoke within my heart, saying, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has seen an abundance of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and simple-minded folly. I came to know that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much vexation, and whoever increases knowledge increases pain. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with gladness, so that you shall see good things. And behold, it too was vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of gladness, what does it do? I explored with my heart how to stimulate my body with wine, while my heart was guiding me wisely, and how to seize simple-minded folly until I could see where is this good for the sons of men in what they do under heaven the few days of their lives. I made my works great. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made for myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools of water from which to water a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers in the pleasures of the sons of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes asked for, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any gladness, for my heart was glad because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I turned to all my works which my hands had done, and the labor which I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no advantage under the sun. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, as we embark on this journey of looking at Solomon's accounts, his life, his reflections upon his life, we're forced to consider our own lives. And it seems as if that's the point. To consider life, to consider our own lives, our motives, our reasons for living, and to examine ourselves to see our own motives, our own desires, the idols of our heart, and to live rightly. We thank you that Solomon was given a life and the wisdom to seek out all these dead ends of pleasure and fulfillment so we don't have to search for them ourselves, but we can glean from his wisdom, from his mistakes. So, Lord, as we look at this passage, help us to do just that. I pray as I speak your word that your words, my words would be your words, and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay. As we saw in last week, we looked at um, the first 11 verses of chapter 1, in, which is essentially uh, Solomon's uh, thesis statement. For this book, it's um, kind of a broad summary and overview 
of uh, his search, his search for fulfillment, for wisdom, to um, understand life, looking for the meaning of life. And throughout this whole book, uh, Solomon continues to pose the same problems of life and meaning and fulfillment. And he presents the same arguments, and then he comes to the same conclusions over and over again. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and a striving after wind. He goes around and around as if he's going in a circular pattern or a downward spiral almost, viewing and seeking to solve this same problem of vanity of life in a fallen world, but he does it from different perspectives or within different categories, um, almost turning around and around, looking at life from different perspectives. And in looking at the problems, the same problems that Solomon looked at and looking at his life, uh, you can see, or you should see, that Solomon was the only one in history who was able to make this search. He was the only one in history who had a chance at pulling this quest for fulfillment off. It's, it's interesting, God's providence in, in appointing Solomon in that time and place, giving him wisdom, and then that he writes this book. Because if any of us tried this search for pleasure, meaning, and fulfillment in the things of this world, we would quickly run out of time, money, or opportunities in our search for pleasure. Or we would lack the abilities to enjoy them. Um, and you think about this, even though Solomon, um, roughly around, uh, I believe it was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, about 900 uh, B.C., um, even though he didn't have all the technology we have, he had many of the opportunities which we do not. And, uh, you know, it's, it's true for um, even the, the most uh, prominent men in history that only Solomon could conduct this search. Only he could um, pull this quest for fulfillment off, if anybody could. Um, you, you think of uh, even uh, people who are, are just have vast amounts of wealth, like Bill Gates or Andrew Carnegie or John D. Rockefeller. Um, even if they ha have had um, enough money, which most of them did, to... Uh, make this search, to make this investigation, they lack the power of kings. They didn't have complete power like Solomon did. Or it took, it took them most of their lives to accumulate their wealth. And so though they had wealth, they uh, lacked the youthful vigor to enjoy all the things they could buy. And then even throughout history, for those conquerors and leaders of empires who have had riches, power, and were in the prime of their youth, they still lacked the wisdom of Solomon. It was only Solomon who had the wealth, the power, um, the ability, and the wisdom to conduct this search for fulfillment, for meaning of life, to um, go on this quest uh, for uh, pleasure, to see where there is fulfillment in life. And so... One of the main benefits of studying the book of Ecclesiastes is that we don't have to do the search ourselves. We can just look at Ecclesiastes. We can glean the wisdom from Solomon, look at his mistakes. We don't have to search for fulfillment in this life because we can read about Solomon's search. And we don't have to conduct this search primarily because we can't. We can't conduct this search. And also, we don't have to try and see. We don't have to go down all these dead-end roads like Solomon did because he has been there, he's done that, and he's gotten a whole wardrobe of stupid T-shirts that say that this is a dead end. Just like the theme and thesis of the book says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity in a striving after the wind. And he wrote that in his despair, in what I believe is his repentance, 
and also to warn and instruct future generations. And so this is almost, we, we've seen last week uh, uh, kind of the, the thesis, the, the summary of his search, and now he's getting into uh, more particular areas of, of life. And it's almost like this is the first cycle that he explains. And in this passage of uh, uh, 112 to 211, we see uh, four areas of life in which Solomon searches for fulfillment. Four areas of life in which he looks for pleasure, for fulfillment, for meaning. And first, uh, Solomon searches for fulfillment in wisdom, knowledge, and foolishness. And, and there's a sense that you can, um, in these different four different areas, you could almost put a character to that, like someone he's, he's looking up to, like maybe that person uh, understands it. And so in this first, this first category, I, I would put the character of the sage. Maybe the sage has figured it out. Because Solomon is looking for fulfillment in wisdom, knowledge, and foolishness in, in, in those mental categories. And perhaps the, the, the wise men, the sage, the most brilliant men of history, maybe they have figured it out. And so verses 12 to 18 Solomon says this, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous endeavor which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is bent cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I spoke within my heart, saying, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has seen an abundance of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and simple-minded folly. I came to know that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much vexation. And whoever increases knowledge increases pain. And it's interesting, I've heard, um, listened to many preachers preach on this um, passage, and uh, uh, it's, it's interesting because a lot of times you hear uh, college pastors <laughs> preach on this, or, or youth pastors preaching uh, uh, towards the, the, those students who, who just want to get one degree after another. Um, you know, you know I, I'm going to go to college and I'm, I'm going to get... Um, do real well, and then, then I'm moving on to grad school, and then I'm going to get my PhD, and, and, and I think um, maybe I'll just uh, write and teach, and, and uh, I just want to learn. But Solomon shows us that that's a dead end, too. Um, and partly because he, he's trying to figure out the end of it all, the meaning of it all. Uh, he, he's looking for answers to all his questions. He searches uh, for fulfillment in wisdom, knowledge, and foolishness, first in understanding God's purposes and plans for man. He, he says, I gave my heart to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Meaning everything, everything in creation, everything that has been done in history, everything that man has done, everything that man does. What's the point of it all? Why do we do what we do? And he says, It is a grievous endeavor which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. All their vocations. Uh, he says, It's futile. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Trying to understand God's purposes and plans for man. And he's, he's starting from the human perspective. Yes, God has given him wisdom uh, that exceeds all people ever until the Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth. But he's not able to find the end of it. He's not able to fully understand it. And we, we see this in a sense, uh, you know, as Job, um, you know, we see hints of this, uh, you know, Job is part of the, what we call the genre of wisdom literature. We think of, um, as theologians, uh, 
they uh, categorize the Bible into uh, narrative or uh, the epistles or gospels or wisdom literature or different categories. Um, and as far as wisdom literature goes, we immediately think of Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. But also in that category is Song of Solomon and Job. And it's interesting, as you go through Ecclesiastes, there's a lot of connections with Job. And in Job chapter 11, 7, 9, as Job's trying to figure out why, what's behind all this, all behind all my suffering, I, 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 it seems as if I, I did what was right, and he's trying to find God's purposes and plans in it. And one of his uh, uh, supposed friends comes to him and says, Can you find the depths of God? Can you find the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. In a sense, the plans and purposes of God and for mankind are beyond your understanding, beyond your finding out, beyond your comprehension. And even at the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy 29.29, a verse you should all memorize and should know and go back to time and time again. The Israelites were, in a sense, supposed to memorize this and um, understand it, that the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And it's interesting that as Solomon conducts this search for fulfillment and looking for meaning in life, purpose, what is best in life. And uh, he goes through all these categories, all this search. He starts with wisdom and knowledge. And, and at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Almost the same as what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You know, the, the secret high things which we can't figure out, that belongs to God. We're, we're just called to uh, stick to his word, to his revealed will. Fear God and keep his commandments. And eventually Solomon would figure that out. He would come to that conclusion, but nonetheless he continues his search uh, to find fulfillment in wisdom, knowledge, and foolishness and understanding God's purposes and plans for man. And then in understanding the advantages of wisdom and knowledge. What, what, what is to be gained by wisdom and knowledge? In verse 16 he says this, I spoke within my heart saying, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has seen an abundance of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and simple-minded folly. I came to know that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much vexation. Whoever increases knowledge increases pain. So, like, what's the end of it? What, what's the, the benefit of it all? You know, it, it's interesting. You may have heard people comment on this uh, somewhere along the lines of, you know, the saying, ignorance is bliss, or, you know... Um, you can say almost in a demeaning way about someone else, you know, I, I, wish I, I wish I was aloof and oblivious like that person because they seem to be happy. <laughs> they don't even know what's going on and, and they're just happy, you know, blissfully ignorant, you know. Uh, <laughs> I remember when, in um, my times in hospice and uh, going to, to visit with people, sometimes, you know, very old. I remember talking to this lady. She was... I, th I believe 96 at the time, and uh, she was still sharp, still very sharp, but everything else was deteriorating, and it was, in a sense, uh, frustrating to her, and I remember um, one time she was pointing over, and, and well, she, she said, well, at least I have my mental faculties, and I'm not like them, and some other people that were in the same room, Alzheimer's, dementia, and then she was like, but actually, it might actually be better to be like them because they're happy. <laughs> and, you know, and there's a sense you can see truth in that. One commentator, he writes this, that wisdom is a mixed blessing. 
To gain wisdom and understanding is to gain a clearer view into the tragedies of life in a world marred by sin. The more you know, the more you're frustrated because you understand how broken this world is. Another commentator, he writes, We observe that those who have struggled to wrest the secret of the universe and those who have abandoned any attempt to understand it both find frustration. He's talking about how Solomon searched for wisdom, but then he, he turned and he went towards madness and simple-minded folly. Because he thought, well, may, I, I found that much wisdom is vexation and pain, um, so, so maybe the fool has it right. Maybe, maybe the person who is mad has figured it out. But there's still frustration. This commentator goes on. He says, those who take life seriously can never take it lightly. At the end of this section, the teacher is frustrated because his thinking is earthbound under heaven. For he depends wholly on his own great wisdom and increased knowledge. It's Solomon's trying to figure this out himself. And on one hand, he can't get to the end of it because even though he's increased in wisdom and knowledge, his wisdom and knowledge is still limited. But then even turning to the fool and, and the person who is mad as almost a sort of mental escapism, there's no joy in that either. So we see in this section that Solomon first searches for fulfillment in wisdom, knowledge, and foolishness. He fails to find it there, so then he searches for fulfillment next in pleasure, joy, and gladness. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with gladness so that you shall see good things, and behold, it too was vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of gladness, what does it do? I explored with my heart how to stimulate my body with wine while my heart was guiding me wisely and how to see simple-minded folly until I could see where is this good for the sons of men and what they do under heaven the few days of their lives. He looks for fulfillment and pleasure, joy, and gladness and you know, what makes people happy. He, he observes the world around him, the, the people around him, and, and he looks at those who seem to be happy, those who seem to be joyful, and he, he said, well, maybe they figured it out. Maybe, maybe they found meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. So he looks at all that is enjoyable, good, pleasing, and funny. I, I, I said of laughter, it is madness, and of gladness, what does it do? He's, you know, on this search for happiness. And you, you think of, of laughter and madness, and, you know, it, pick, it brings to mind the, the picture of the court jester. And certainly in his time, um, kings, we think of the court jester in, in medieval terms, but um, kings, uh, people of great wealth and power, they've always had their jesters or comedians or places to go to um, be enlightened and uh, to, be, um, to hear jokes, to hear laughter, to have that release. And so he seeks for that release in, in anything that is good. Anything that, where there seems to be gladness, anything where there seems to be uh, uh, joy and mirth, you know, and yet, you know, if you know anything about uh, comedians, they tend to be the most depressed people there is. We, we think of um, some of the greatest comedians have suffered with depression, have even killed themselves. Robin Williams comes to mind. Um, and yes, he was very foul, but he was also a very gifted comedian and also a very depressed and troubled person, as many comedians are. So he, he looks for fulfillment in, in whatever makes people happy and then whatever makes people good, what makes people, or what makes people feel good, rather. He's searching for fulfillment, pleasure, joy, and gladness and and what makes people feel good? And he says in verse 3, I explored with my heart how to stimulate my body with wine while my heart was guiding me wisely and how to see simple-minded folly until I could see where is this good for the sons of men and what they do under heaven the few days of their lives. 
And Solomon here is what he's doing, and he, he's trying to find that subtle balance where it seems as if he's drinking enough to feel the effects and yet not um, commit the sin of drunkenness, not get completely drunk. And that, that's, that's hard to, even as you look at the Bible, that's hard to really define. But we see that he qualifies this statement, while my heart was guiding me wisely. He still wanted to maintain his mental faculties, his mental reasoning, but he wanted to see, this was a, a search, an investigation, is this where fulfillment is found? Because I see other people... Um, socializing, drinking, there's mirth, there's joy in these parties, and maybe they figure it out. So he says he explores with his heart how to stimulate his body with wine while not losing complete control. Yet in the same time, he, it seems as if he's drinking enough uh, uh, to feel the effects yet not get drunk enough to sin, but he's also sinning in the fact that he's searching for for fulfillment in a substance. And, and that's, that's the core of idolatry. Is where do you find your hope in? Where, where do you search for hope and pleasure and joy? And, and that's so why, you know, many pastors, counselors would say, you know, anything can become an idol. If you find your hope in that, if you're looking for that to uh, give you satisfaction, that, in a sense, becomes your God. One commentator writes that pleasure, although not necessarily evil, has its shortcomings. Much like human wisdom, Solomon reflected on his tragic experiences in attempting to draw satisfaction purely out of pleasure. He's making this, this search in pleasure, joy, and gladness. Whatever makes people happy, whatever makes people feel good, maybe it's there. But he doesn't find it there. So we see that Solomon has searched for fulfillment and wisdom, knowledge and foolishness. He failed to find it there. And then he sought for fulfillment and pleasure, joy and gladness and failed to find it there. And so now he seeks for fulfillment in projects, performance and possessions. Verses 4 to 8. I made my works great. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made for myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools of water from which to water a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasure pleasures of the sons of men, many concubines. He's searching for fulfillment in his works and his labors, and, and not just his uh, personal work, but massive building projects, uh, earthworks and constructions and uh, uh, parks and gardens. Uh, uh, he <laughs> says he makes pools of water from which to water a forest. Massive public works. He, he, he is searching for fulfillment in his creations, in my creations. It, it, notice how he says, I made my. I made my works great. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made for myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools of water from which to water a forest of growing trees. This is my creation. Uh, you know, it, it, it's all about what he's doing, uh, thinking that, you know, may, maybe I'll build a lot. Maybe I'll create a lot. Maybe I'll, uh, you know, do a lot of these works these, uh, and, and almost recreate the landscape. It makes me think of, you know, on a smaller level, you know, um, most of you have owned a home and you've been new home buyers. And, you know, when you first buy a new home, uh, you're excited, you're motivated, you have schemes and plans of what you're going to do with the house, how you're going to remodel it, what you're going to do with the yard. And it's exciting. 
I also remember um, meeting and interacting with uh, people who flip houses, who, who, you know, they're house flippers. They, they, they buy, try to buy, you know, a somewhat dumpy house for a cheap price and remodel it as cheap as they can and sell it as expensive as they can. And, and they start off um, doing that to um, make money, and they can make a lot of money, but um, not long after they're doing it, it, it's not so much about the money anymore, but about the project, and they enjoy it. And, and there's something to that, that, you know, and they, they go buy the houses that they have bought and sold and say, yeah, I, I did that. I bought that, I remodeled that, and, and I sold that, I made some money off of it, but it seems as if they find more fulfillment in the fact that they have remodeled it and made it something better. This is, in a sense, what, what uh, Solomon is doing. But the key is, is that phrase, I made. I made. The sense of his creation, this is an attempt to uh, almost return to Eden. Almost reflects a creation to escape the effects of the fall, in a sense. It reminds me of what one preacher once said that every time fallen man attempts to create a utopia, it eventually tur turns into a dystopia. And as great as Solomon's works would be, they wouldn't fulfill him. And now we, you can't, there's some archaeologists who, who would even claim that that may be one of Solomon's pools, but we're not exactly sure. It's all been covered up and erased by time. By time, it's gone. There's no fulfillment. And he, even he would, uh, would say that, he would admit that, that he really didn't find fulfillment in that. He looks for it in his creations. And then next, in his possessions. His possessions, verses 7 and 8. And he says, I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of the sons of men, many concubines. He obtained everything a fallen man would want. Everything that a man could possibly want. And not just a man, everything a man would want, but everything a king would want. Everything a ruler would want. He collected it. He um, established it. And, and, and notice how the context here, because at the end you know, of verse 8 it says, it says, the pleasures of the sons of men, many concubines. But this is in the context of possession. The emphasis here is on the possession of or the collection of and not so much on the use of. And not that Solomon didn't use or partake, but more than, than that is that he possessed, that he had it, his, his status, because it comes right after um, his works. He's looking for uh, fulfillment in projects, in his performance, and in his possessions. In all that he had, becoming everything that any fallen man would want, any king would want. He had singers, he had choirs, he had silver and gold, he had parks, he had public works, he had his 700 wives and his 300 concubines which was, yes, he did partake in those uh, sinful pleasures, but it was more the possession of, the status. This is, this is who I am. And, and it reminds me, because he sees that there was no fulfillment in it, it reminds me of, uh, you know, not too long ago, Hugh Hefner died, and... Uh, I, don't, I shouldn't have to elaborate on who he was or what he did. You, you all should know. But I remember um, he was, for most of his life, um, ever since he became somewhat famous, for most of his life, most uh, unbelieving men would look up to him. That's what I want. And I remember soon after he died, it may have been the same day, there was uh, uh, some, 
I, I don't think he's a minister, but he has a ministry. And he tweeted out, he said, um, Hugh Hefner is standing naked before God. And it wasn't so much a joke, it, it, but it's sobering. It's sobering. That everything he thought would bring him pleasure, fulfillment, everything which every other fallen man, sinful man thought would bring pleasure and fulfillment, gone. And now he's naked before God. And he has to give an account. Vanity of vanities. Chasing after the wind. And all of these accomplishments of Solomon were just that. He realizes that vanity of vanities. And there's a sense that Solomon's just um, almost uh, doing what every other king was supposed to do, doing what every other fallen man would want to do. He, 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 instead of using uh, the wisdom he prayed for to advance Israel and to lead uh, God's people, which he did do, he, he, he abuses that wisdom and he turns it upon himself to find fulfillment in this world. Dr. William Barrick, who's, um, I didn't have him as a professor, um, but he was at the Master's Seminary for a long time, and he is a renowned Old Testament scholar. I go to his works and his website and his books often, but he writes this. This is kind of a lengthy quote, but it's interesting. He says this, Ancient Near Eastern peoples expected their kings to accomplish much during their reigns. Their own inscriptions tend to list their accomplishments as evidence that they had ruled well and had provided the benefits their subjects required for a healthy and happy existence. Much of it sounds a lot like politics in our day. He reads one inscription, I am Misha, son of Chemosh, king of Moab, and I built Baal Mion, making a reservoir in it, and I built Karyaten. It was I who built Karho, the wall of the forest and the wall of the citadel. I also built its gates, and I built its towers, and I built the king's house. And I made both of its reservoirs for water inside the town. And I cut beams for Karho with Israelite captives. I built Aurora, and I made the highway in the Arnon Valley. I built Beth Belamoth, for it had been destroyed. I built Bezer, for it lay in ruins. And then he goes on to another king, Hammurabi, king of Babylon commemorates his accomplishments by means of various dating formulas employed to refer to each year of his reign. He identifies each of his 43 years as king by what he established, constructed, or restored, or whom he defeated. The following provides a partial listing. One, Hammurabi became king. He constructed a throne. The wall of the sacred precinct, Gagia, was built. He constructed the canal called Hammurabi Hegel. The great wall of Sippar was built. He redug the canal called Hammurabi. Uh, he provided Nippur, Ridu, Ur, Larsa, Uruk, and Isin, all cities, with a permanent and plentiful water supply. He built the temple for Anu, Inani, and Nana, the false gods. And then Dr. Barrett goes on to say, in light of Misha's and Hammurabi's claims, Solomon's list of accomplishments run according to expectations. The difference, however, consists of the fact that Misha and Hammurabi speak as though they are fully satisfied with their lives. But Solomon confesses that all such accomplishments bring him no lasting satisfaction. Why the difference? Solomon worships the true God while Misha and Hammurabi worship idols. Their idolatry causes them no loss of sleep, but Solomon does. One who knows the true and living God can never be satisfied merely with what this world offers. Solomon knows better than to pin his hope on things under the sun. And he writes that commenting on Ecclesiastes after the fact. Because Ecclesiastes is part of Solomon's uh, repentance. But while he was doing all this, um, you'd almost be safe to say that Solomon wasn't truly a believer. He may have not truly been repentant until later on. Um, and there's accounts uh, in... Uh, in Kings and Chronicles about how Solomon went after false gods, but then he writes Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, and it's almost like his repentance. And he sees that all of this was vanity of vanities. It did not fulfill him. 
So we see that Solomon's search for fulfillment in wisdom, knowledge, and foolishness. Didn't find it there. Then he sought for fulfillment in pleasure, joy, and gladness. Didn't find it there. And then thought that maybe he would find it in his projects, performance, and possessions. And didn't find it there either. So finally, he seeks for fulfillment and prominence, power, and legacy. Verse 9 to 11. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes asked for, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any gladness, for my heart was glad because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I turned to all my works which my hands had done and the labor which I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was no advantage under the sun. He turns in these last few verse, uh, verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2 and, and uh, reflecting upon all that he did. And he reflects upon um, his greatness, his power, his legacy. He says, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. He, he speaks of um, almost... Uh, finding joy or satisfaction in all that he did, all that he was, uh, after he uh, failed to find his fulfillment in wisdom and pleasure and possessions and, and looking at those things, he becomes great and he almost reflects on his status as if he could find fulfillment in, at least in what he had done what he had attained to. And almost as he says, then I became great, uh, uh, seeking for fulfillment in my position, my, my status, that um, I was better than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I was the greatest king of all. I, I, I may have not found satisfaction in wisdom or knowledge or um, pleasure or um, all the things that I did in doing them or all the things I have, but you know, at least I have this. I was the greatest king of all. I was better than everyone who preceded me. And I also, uh, also um, had my wisdom with me. My, my wisdom remained intact. So he, he reflects upon um, what he did, who he is, and, and almost as if it's a last-ditch effort to maybe find satisfaction, maybe find fulfillment in my position or in my power. Verse 10, all that my eyes asked for, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any gladness, for my heart was glad because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. That at least I have power. I have power. Even though... Um, in exercising that power, there's, there's not a whole lot of fulfillment, but in the thought that I have it, that I have power, and I, I can do something with it. it. I can do almost whatever I please. And just the thought of having power, having control. I mean, men, women spend their whole lives striving for control, for power. Um... In studying for this message, I, I, I was listening to a couple sermons, and um, one preacher recounted about Howard Hughes and how at the end of his life, he, he, was, a, he was a very wealthy man. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he uh, built his wealth through uh, airplanes, building airplanes, and, and uh, towards the end of his life almost um, became uh, uh, neurotic, uh, just, uh, just uh, paranoid, to the max, and uh, this one preacher recounts a story of how he was talking to his assistant, and he says, says something to, along the effects of, um, I can destroy any man, and I can uh, almost make any man something. And he is like, I have the power to do with anybody as I wish, and if I didn't have that power, if there wasn't such a thing, people like me wouldn't exist. And so at the end of it, even though he did not find satisfaction in all the wealth and all the things that he did, uh, similar to Solomon, he was 
in the end, looking for satisfaction in the fact that he had power. He had power. And Solomon does this as almost a last-ditch effort. At least I had power. At least I, I was greater than all kings after me or before me. And then verse 11, he, he, he looks for his accomplishments and my accomplishments. Thus I turned to all my works which my hands had done and the labor which I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was no advantage under the sun. It's like he looks at his accomplishments and says, well, you know, at least I did something. But then, well, actually, um, that's probably going to go away anyways at some point. Eventually, that's going to fade away. Uh, and, and eventually, I'm going to die and I'm not going to see it. And so, beginning with wisdom to madness to foolishness, simple-mindedness to pleasure and joy, gladness, projects, his performance, his possessions, his power. Solomon is slowly finding out that he cannot find the answers to life's deepest questions in himself by his own power or ingenuity, through his own pleasure, experiences, accomplishments, prominence, possessions, or prestige. And notice how throughout this from... Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. Notice how in the beginning of each uh, search or each uh, category in which he searches for fulfillment, we see a phrase that has to do with his heart. He begins in chapter 1 and verse 13. I gave my heart to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. And then verse 16, I spoke within my heart saying, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. Verse 17, And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and simple-minded folly. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with gladness. Verse 3, I explored with my heart how to stimulate my body with my wine while my heart was guiding me wisely. It was all about his heart where his heart was. Even verse 10, I did not withhold my heart from any gladness, for my heart was glad because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. It goes back to that saying, which you've probably heard many preachers say before, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. His heart was discontent, dissatisfied. Couldn't find fulfillment, couldn't find satisfaction. And I can, in a sense, reflect upon this. Uh, most people could identify with this, if you're honest. Because probably, just like many of you, most of my life, and uh, it's probably true for most people as well, but for most of my life, I've been striving to get to where I was going. Wherever that was. Is striving to get to where I'm going. Chasing the ever-elusive point of arrival. You know, it started all, all the way back to, you know, uh, being in middle school. You know, if, if, if I can just, you know, get a job, make some money, and then maybe I can buy some stuff, and, and, and maybe I can, uh, you know, make enough money to buy a car, and then, then I'll have more freedom, and then that will be great. And then, then maybe, you know, once I graduate high school, that would be awesome because then I'll be free and I can get a job and uh, make more money and get out of the house and have more freedom. Um, but then, you know, I, I'm limited because I only have a high school degree so, or a, a high school diploma, so I need uh, some sort of vocational certification or a good career or maybe a college degree will do that. So once I, I get that done, once I achieve that, then, then I'll really live. And, and then once I get to that level, then uh, I have stuff, I have freedom, and... and but then I need someone to share it with. So if I find that special someone, I get married, I find my soulmate, then I will arrive and then I will have satisfaction. But it's, it's never ending. It's never ending. It's vanity of vanities and striving after the wind. And God does give us these things. He gives us enjoyable things in this life. But just as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
We're restless. We're unsatisfied until we find our rest in God. And this is what Solomon is trying to get at, taking us through this painful process of showing us all these dead ends of life that, no, you won't find rest there. No, you won't find satisfaction there. There are good things. God does give us good things. There are things to enjoy in this world, but we won't find complete satisfaction there. We won't find fulfillment there. We won't find all our hope and joy there. It's a chasing after the wind. As I, I remember uh, one preacher uh, said, and, and I don't completely agree with him. He grew up in probably the 80s, and he said, um, most of the good things in this world are like juicy fruit, which is the best gum in the world for about five seconds. And then it loses its flavor, and that's it. And that's it. And so you enjoy it for a time, and that's it. But it's not lasting. It's temporary. David had it right in Psalm 16:11. He said, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And that's the only place. That's the only place. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just this quest, this path, this search that it's almost as if you sent Solomon on it yourself to show us just the, the dead-end streets of this world. Yeah, outside of you, there's no lasting satisfaction, no lasting fulfillment. And many throughout church history have said the same. Lord, we thank you for the good things of life. We thank you for peace and prosperity, for relationships, for good food, for vacations. We thank you for the stuff that you've given us. But at the end, it's just stuff. And it'll soon be gone. Lord, help us to be thankful and yet not to place our full hope and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction in the things of this world. Help us to look to you always. And, and when we do have something or are given something which we enjoy, help us to use it as an opportunity to praise you and give you thanks. We thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.